0: One of our kids' favorite games growing up was Monopoly. Monopoly was not one of my favorite games when they were growing up, but they liked to play Monopoly. The primary reason I didn't like to play, because I don't like to lose, so anybody here play Monopoly? Okay. It's kind of one of those every generations. Um, there is a card in Monopoly in the community chest that says, Inherit and if you get that card, you know that's good news because you get cash to add to your stockpile of resources. It's free money. It's just a free gift. In real life, when you inherit money, it usually means someone has died. In October of 2000, My father died at the age of 80. He suffered from Alzheimer's and emphysema. And after that, within a few months, I received a letter uh, from my father's attorney. And the letter letter included a nine-page legal document that was my father's last will and testament. The will outlined that my father's estate should be divided into thirds. One-third went to my older sister, Sharon. One-third went to my younger sister, Mitzi, who uh, was uh, is a special needs person, and uh, that money w- given to her went into a supervised trust. One third uh, was to go to me. Within a few more months, I received another letter from my father's attorney, and th- this letter contained a check. And this check represented one third of my father's estate. It was a free gift to me. I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve it because I was a good son. It was just a gift from my dad. That's an example in real life. And that's how the Apostle Paul begins in Galatians chapter 3. Because in the book of Galatians, Paul has been outlining that there is an inheritance And it is a free gift from God, and it's not earned, and is not deserved, and it comes because of a death, and it is from the death of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to begin in Galatians chapter 3, and verse uh, 15, and Paul begins here. Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say and to seeds, meaning many people, but to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise, but God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. So if you're following on your outline, the first thing we're going to point out here in verses 15 through 18 is that my my eternal inheritance is based on the promises of God. My eternal inheritance is based on the promises of God. In verse 15, the promises are binding like a duly established legal contract, just like my father's last will and testament. Back to verse 15, one more time. Brothers and sisters. Now, this is an interesting beginning. This is the major change in tone in the letter so far. If you go back to verse 1, you know what Paul said? He said, you foolish Galatians. You know, he's pretty harsh with them at the start. Now he warms the tone here. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add hum- a human, to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. So Paul gives this everyday example from his culture, the first century in the Roman Empire under Roman law. Roman law, as you will know, was highly valued. The Romans uh, promoted it all through their empire, and uh, Romans kept their laws. And if they didn't, there was usually some kind of uh, punishment for breaking the law. Rome brought an extremely high value to law in its land. So if there was a legal contract or a human covenant, an agreement, you just don't set it aside because you don't like it. That's what Paul is saying here. In verses 16 through 18, uh, let me just uh, also go back and remind you of what's happening so far in the book just briefly. A group of people have come into the Galatian churches with a desire to bring changes to the way things are done. They want to change the gospel. They want to add something to the gospel. They're Judaizers. That's a name that Paul refers to them. Uh, Instead of uh, the gospel being that Jesus died on the cross and paid the penalty for your sins and that your response is to believe in him and trust him and you can be saved from the penalty of sins, they want to say you need to believe in Jesus and you need to keep the law of the Old Testament or the law of Moses. You need to believe and do good and do good works. Then you will be saved. So they want to make this big change. And Paul says, no way. And he says, anyone who wants to change this gospel, let him be a curse. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. So now we come to verses 16 through 18 in chapter 3. The promises. Promises of God precede and supersede the law of the Old Testament. This is going to be important because this has a major impact on how you read the Bible. One of the problems of reading the Bible in bits, is, bits and pieces is you don't understand the, the, the major context. How does a Bible fit together? How does Jesus fit in this? How does the future fit in it? How does the past fit in? Paul's given us some huge clues right here. Verse 16, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. God made promises, and we've looked at these already. We'll refer to them in just a minute. Made promises to Abraham. God came to Abraham, and he spoke to Abraham. Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, Genesis 18, and Genesis 22. And these promises were made to Abraham and his seed. And that word seed is a word that can be used in a singular way or a plural way. And it's usually thought of as plural and thinking of the descendants of Abraham. But one of the things that Paul is doing right here is he's bringing in clarity that the ultimate fulfillment of Abraham's promises comes through one person, one seed, or uh, we could say offspring, Continuing scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. Uh, Genesis chapter 13, verses 14 and 15. The Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had parted from him, look around from where you are. So God has sent Abraham into this new land. It's a land, and this is not where Abraham was raised. It's it's a new land. It's a land of Palestine with the land of Israel that we look at. Today on the map, it's actually larger than that back here in the Old Testament. Look around from where you are to the north and south, to the east and the west. All the land that you will see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. That's just one aspect of the c- promises or the covenant God made with Abraham. And it was to his offspring, and it's going to be one particular, and it's going to be forever this is an eternal promise, an eternal covenant. It's going to put the entire Bible together under the promise, okay? Um, verse uh, Matthew 1.1 also. This is a genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And this is so important to Matthew, the gospel writer, to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, that Jesus is the seed, the offspring that's connected to Abraham because his whole life is going to change everything, okay? So we're just saying Jesus is identified as the descendant of Abraham. And again, I mentioned this last week. This is why the genealogies are so important because they're connecting all the families because they want to show where Jesus came from. They didn't even know it when they were recording the genealogies. There was a purpose. The ultimate purpose was to show Jesus' family lineage. Verse 17, uh, Paul writes, when I, What I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. So one thing that's really important here, the promises that God gave to Abraham, came at least 430 years. It's probably referring to promises, promises God gave Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when Jacob went into the land of Egypt, into slavery, it was 430 years later that the law came to Moses. That's why we went through the book of Exodus, how the law came to uh, Moses. Moses. Every once in a while, my wife is always reminding me when you say the law, explain what the law is. Okay. When Paul's talking about the law, he's talking about the law of Moses, 613 commands that are in the Old Testament. We could summarize them with calling it the Ten Commandments or the summary of the 613. Call them the big ten. Um, Some of you know these. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. Don't kill. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness against your neighbor. Don't covet anything. That's pretty much it. If you can do that, you're perfect. Got it? And so Paul talks about the law. That's what he's talking about. It came 430 years after the promises God gave to Abraham. The law does not precede um, the promises, and it does not supersede the promises. The promises are still in effect, even though the law is no longer in effect. The promises... This is what's important to understanding your reading of the Bible. The promises are actually more important than the law of Moses. Um, He says in verse 18, For if the inheritance depends on the law, the Ten Commandments and the other 603, then it no longer depends on the promise. Uh, The inheritance, this is a little bit complicated and a little bit abstract. Maybe you've noticed. This is really important to what Paul is saying in um, the book of Galatians. The inheritance refers to what I get if promises are mine. And um, Paul says, if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. He's saying, if this got changed, something's messed up here. The inheritance of the promises are based on the promises, not the law. It's who promised them and who are to be the recipients. God is the one who promised. And Abraham's descendants are recipients of the promise by faith. And this is what Paul's argument will be. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. God in his grace, unmerited favor, They didn't deserve it. They didn't earn it by being good. They didn't earn it by keeping the law. They didn't earn it by doing good works. It was grace. God gave to Abraham through the inheritance through a promise. Remember, we looked at this last week. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Abraham was declared righteous because of his faith. This happened hundreds of years before the law was ever given Salvation was by faith in the Old Testament. The promises ran through all of the way. Abraham was like model by faith. He was declared righteous. Um, So uh, what does this term inheritance mean to me? It means Christ died for me. And in his last will and testament... He gave something to me. It was by grace. It was not because of me doing anything good or because I achieved anything by my performance. Christ died for me. And uh, I did not earn it. I did not deserve it. But what I know is my sins are forgiven. I, didn't, I don't deserve that. I was given Eternal life. I deserved death. I've been given the Holy Spirit. I've been indwelled by the Holy Spirit. I've been gifted by the Holy Spirit. I've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. I've been baptized by the Holy Spirit. I've been made a child of God. I've been adopted as a son of God. That's part of my inheritance. It's also your inheritance, too if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, that's verses 15 through 18. Now we come to 19 through 25. Secondly, my my eternal inheritance is received by faith. My eternal inheritance is received by faith. Verse 19 through 22, the purpose of the law is different from the promises of God. You've probably already got that. But let's follow the Apostle Paul's argument here. Verse 19, why then was the law given at all? That's really a good question. Why do we need the law? Was the law bad? No. It was added because of transgressions until the seed, who was a person, Jesus, to whom the promise referred had come. The law was added to identify sin. Just like today, people haven't always been clear What sin is. Some things were spelled out in the Old Testament before the law was given. But when the law was given, things were spelled out much more clearly about what honors God and what dishonors God. Sin dishonors God. You you want to know what dishonors God? Then read the law of the Old Testament And it helped people identify what sin was. So if you cared about God, if you wanted to honor God, you could understand more of what honored him and what dishonored him by knowing the law. And, of course, when you know the law, you're going to find out that there's a whole lot of things that are imperfect about you. We don't like stuff like that because we just don't want to deal with guilt. I mean, that's what happens in our culture is you start telling people what they've done wrong, and they just, I don't want to hear it. But the law helped people identify what was honoring to God and what was dishonoring to God. Um, It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was temporary. Temporary. This is important to understand. The law was temporary. It was always intended to be temporary. It was given at the time of Moses, about 1,500 years before the birth of Christ. And when Christ died, the law was fulfilled, and the law did not continue in the same way. Big change, big change on how you understand the Bible. Big change on how you understand the Old Testament. Big change on how you're going to understand the Book of Revelation, all the way through from Genesis through Revelation. And then uh, Paul writes, um, "The law was given through angels entrusted to a mediator." We learn in Acts seventeen, Acts seven fifty three, and Hebrews two two through verse 3, that the law was given through angels. Exodus said it was the finger of God that wrote the commandments. And the finger of God is identified in Acts 7 as being angels were the one writing the law. So here's the point. God didn't directly give the law. He did it through angels, and he did it through a mediator. Who was the mediator? Moses. Moses. Moses received the law on Mount Sinai, and he went down to the people, and he gave the law to the people, and he represented God to the people, and he explained the requirements of this covenant to the people, and the people had the opportunity to choose to agree or not agree, and when they agreed, they entered into a new relationship, a covenant relationship with the true and living God, and it was, we call it today, the old covenant the law of Moses. So they entered into that covenant. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. Nothing wrong with that. Verse twenty. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, right? Angels, Moses, two parties. God to the people, but God is one. Verse twenty. What what is? Uh, What is Paul referring to there? God is one. We all know God is one. Well, what he's saying is there weren't two parties with the covenant that God made with Abraham. There was only one, and it was God. God spoke directly to Abraham. God even set out to have a covenant with Abraham. God even set out animals. And by the way, these animals are all in the law. This is pre-law. Same animals are in The Levitical law. But God went through that uh, walk through this by himself without Abraham. God initiated the covenant. He inaugurated the covenant. He put it into place. Abraham's requirement was to believe, to respond in faith. What's Paul saying? This is way greater than having a mediator when God himself deals with man. Verse 21, is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. Good question, though, because it seems like the more we hear about the law, the more we don't like it. Uh, Yes, it raised some difficult issues for people, but it also had some good value to help God's people. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Nope. For if the law had been given that could impart life, the righteousness would certainly have come by the law. This is a big deal here. The law cannot impart life, cannot impart spiritual life, cannot impart God's life, cannot enable anybody to be born again spiritually. The law cannot do that. And so he says, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. God is the one who imparts life, and he imparts it through his promises. And those promises began with Abraham, and they still hold true today through Abraham's offspring, Jesus Christ. But the scripture, verse 22, locked up everything under the control of sin. This is a hard one. The scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin. There are a few passages in the Old Testament. Psalm 143, verses 1 and 2. Here's David, Lord, hear my prayer. Listen to my cry for mercy. In your faithfulness and righteousness, come to my relief. Do not bring your servant into judgment, for no one living is righteous before you. This is something David understood. It's because of the law. No one living is righteous before you. Um. Isaiah, the prophet, Isaiah 53, verse 6, says this. This is a couple hundred years after David wrote that in Psalm 143. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of, each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him, actually referring to Jesus in the future, the iniquity of us all. Isaiah is saying, we're just like sheep. We wander off. We go We go astray. We, we do our own thing. We turn to our own way. What he's saying? We're, we, we're sinners. We're selfish. We do what we want. We, we don't always do what God wants. We do what we like to do. And the Apostle Paul uh, summarizes that in the New Testament in Romans 3.23. He says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, which puts us all in the same boat. Every human is a, is a sinner, has been from the beginning. All of us fall short. And one of the things the law did was to identify what sin is. Verses 23 through 25. The purpose of Christ is to fulfill the promises of God. Verse uh, 23. Before the coming of this faith, and Paul is talking about Really, what are the implications of Jesus' coming? And he's talking about the implications of the Christian faith as a way of salvation. Before the coming of the Christian faith as a way of salvation, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until faith that was to come would be revealed. The law made people slaves to a great taskmaster. People could not win by keeping the law. They couldn't be perfect. Uh, They fell short. They were reminded that they needed God. Sometimes people didn't think they needed God. They just tried harder and got more religious. Verse 24, so the law was our guardian until Christ came that we may be justified by faith. The key concept here is guardian. In the first century, if you were wealthy, and there were quite a few wealthy people, Um, you had somebody to raise your kids. Really important in raising sons is probably really important in raising daughters too, but the focus was on the sons in the Roman world. And so if you had a son, you had a guardian in your home, a servant, or say a slave that was highly trained and highly skilled as a teacher, and he would have care for your son. And he would do everything with him and for him as he needed it. And then the, this, this guardian gave instructions to your son on how to live, on how to bathe, how to dress, what manners were, how to speak, uh, basic educational things. And the guardian would even take them to school and pick them up and bring them home. And uh, this Roman boy was under the care of the guardian, and also the guardian was a strict disciplinarian. Parents didn't do this. The guardian was the disciplinarian. The point of this, this is how the law worked. The law was the guardian, very strict, and it was to give instruction on how to live. It did not impart grace. It did not impart life. There was value in it, but it was not the promise. There was no inheritance in the law. Verse 24. So verse 23, uh, before the coming of this faith, we were held custody under the law, locked up until that faith was to come, would be revealed, and that would be through Jesus Christ. Verse 24. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Uh, verse 25, now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Now that this faith has come, clearly Paul's argue argues here, we are no longer under the law. Let's not go back to it. But that's the problem that the Galatians have done, and that's what they're tempted to do. They want to go back. They've been given this marvelous thing. They've seen the fulfillment of prophecy, the fulfillment of promises given to them. They've even received benefits of the promises, and now they want to go back to an old way. That's not the way at all. Here are the implications of Jesus' death. First of all, Christ's life and death fulfilled the law. Um, because of who he is, because of his life, the standards are be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Jesus lived that life and he fulfilled the law in that way. And because of who Jesus is, when he died on the cross and he paid the penalty for your sin, because he is God, he was human and he was deity. And... There's so many Christians who don't get this part. Because of who he is, he paid for the sin penalty for the entire world, for everyone, for all time. And yeah, 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 yeah. What does that mean? I mean, how could he do that? If you take your sins, and I don't know, you know, we could run a computer in here and start adding up our sin penalty. There'd be some kind of value. God could put a value on it. And if that computer was just tripping away and counting up your sins and my sins and people next to you, and the people in the city, and the people in the state, and the people in the world, the people in Paris, and the sin penalty is just getting humongous. We're going to go back to Adam and Eve and all the people, and we're going to go back to your kids who aren't born yet, and we're going to go into the future until Jesus comes back. How big is that sin penalty? It is humongous. Jesus' life is infinitely valuable, and he paid the price, and he paid it all. But how many people are going to benefit from it? Only those who believe. Christ's death removed the penalty of the law, which is death. The wages of sin is death. And the third thing is Christ's death sets aside the old covenant and established a new covenant. That's pretty amazing. Christ's death set aside the old covenant and established a new covenant. There is an Old Testament, an old story. And there is a new story, a new testament. Jesus has a last will and testament. And he offers his inheritance to every person. Last thing is we enter the promises and receive the inheritance by faith. Peter says in 1 Peter 3:18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body but made alive in the Spirit. Christ's last will in Testament, he suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. He's the righteous. You and I are the unrighteous. Why? To bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the Spirit. Romans 5.8 is another important passage that reminds us of this. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this, while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died in our place. It was because of his love. He took our place. I deserve death, the wages of sin is death, but he stood in for me. He was my substitute. He was your substitute. Um I recently read a Kind of a neat story to help uh, give this picture. It's from uh, the life of Dr. Tom Hufty, professor at Hannibal LaGrange College. This took place in 2002. It was uh, final exam day. The students came in. The professor had spent a great deal of time in review of their final exam, went over everything they had talked about in class in a summary and then said, there are gonna be things on this exam that are in your book that we didn't go over. When it came time to do their exam, the exam was on every student's table and uh, the exam was uh, face down so the students couldn't see it. And the professor said, leave your exams over until I've done explaining everything. And then he had the students begin and turn their exams over. To their surprise, Every exam was totally filled out. Every answer was correct. Every test had the student's personal name written on the exam. At the bottom was a note from the professor saying, the creator of this test has taken your exam, and it is perfect. And you will be given an A for this exam. And then he went around to every student in the class and he said, what grade did you get? And every student had to say, I got an A. And the professor said, did you earn this grade? No, they didn't earn it. And his whole point was, after going around the entire class, was this is grace. You can learn about it. You can read about it. But you have to experience it. And if you've placed your faith in Christ, you've experienced grace. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This is God's requirement. This is how you receive that grace. This is part of the promise that came through Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham. It's because of God's love for all of us That he gave his one and only son, Jesus, as a sacrifice. Whoever, that's amazing. Whoever, you, me, any person, whoever believes in him, Jesus, the son, will not perish but have eternal life. Connecting us with the promises of God, the promises God gave to Abraham. Abraham was declared righteous by faith. And we too can be declared righteous by faith. I received a check in the mail for my father's inheritance. It was about $60,000. You're going to worry what I did with it. Mostly I paid off college loans of my kids. But when I got that check in the mail, it's still just a piece of paper, I signed my name And I took it to the bank. That's what you do with checks. And the bank put it into my account. The check wasn't any good until I, by act of faith, I signed it. And that's what every person needs to do with Jesus. It's an act of faith that you make. It's not an act that your parents, it's not because you grew up in a good church or a good home. It's because you choose to place your faith in Jesus Christ, who died for you. So as I close this morning, I just want to give an opportunity for anyone here, maybe who's never done this before, if there's just one person here that this makes sense to and is, it's new to and you'd like to begin a relationship with God by placing your faith in Christ, I want to give you that opportunity. And If you're here and you're a follower of Christ, you can just pray for us right now. Pray that God gives us clarity and understanding that the gospel will be understood And uh, that you will share this message with people in your life that you know need to hear it. So if you're here and you'd like to begin a relationship with God by trusting Jesus, I'm going to pray a prayer. I'm going to go through it two times. The first time, I just want you to listen to see if it makes sense. And the second time, I'll invite us all to bow our heads. We'll pray it silently from your hearts, okay? So the prayer goes like this. Dear God, I admit that I'm a sinner. Thank you that Jesus died for me. I trust him right now to pay the penalty for my sin. And I want to invite Jesus to come into my life and ask him to help me to be the kind of person that he wants me to be. So it's pretty simple, but it's understanding who I am and who Jesus is and what he's done for me. Let's all bow in prayer. And if that prayer made sense, just from your own heart, silently just talk to God. And you can repeat this after me just silently. Dear God, I admit that I'm a sinner. I thank you that Jesus died for me. I trust him right now to pay the penalty for my sin. I ask Jesus to come into my life and I ask Jesus to help me to be the person that he wants me to be. If you prayed that prayer with me, if everybody would just keep their heads still bowed just for another minute, if you prayed that prayer with me, would you mind slipping up your hand so I can see? If you, raise your, if you prayed along with me, just slip up your hand. Anyone else? Thank you. You can put your hands down. Father, we thank you for grace. We recognize we don't deserve it. Thank you that Jesus died for each of us. Thank you for those people who responded by faith, put their trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And Father, I pray that right now they might sense the presence of uh, your your spirit, that uh, they might sense that you have uh, given them eternal life and that you'll encourage them and give them hope to have Jesus Help them one day at a time. Father, remind us all about how important it is for us to share this message with people in our world. For Jesus' sake, amen.